Leapers. Written and read by TJ Tooley. Part 2. Get up. We need to talk. Carson was frozen in place. He was laying on the ground looking up at the strange man dressed in all black with his face covered by a white bandana and sunglasses. The barrel of the man's gun was now inches away from his face. Jesse continued to scream for help from inside of the storage unit. Okay, okay, Carson said as he quickly got to his feet. Nobody needs to get hurt. He watched as the man circled behind him, never pointing the gun away from his head. Carson heard what sounded like a code being typed in on an electronic keypad, followed by a buzzing sound and a garage door opening. The man reappeared in front of Carson and pointed the gun in between his eyes. Turn around, slowly. Carson obliged. In front of him was a storage unit, packed full of junk with a small path on the left-hand side. He could feel the barrel of the gun pressed against the back of his head. Move, the man demanded. Carson slowly walked into the storage unit, being careful to not bump into the random items piled up to the ceiling. Stop here. Carson waited as the man turned on a light inside the unit and shut the door with them inside. Move, the man ordered again. Move? Move where? Carson asked. I have maybe two feet before I hit a dead end. Just... Move forward, okay? The man said in a surprisingly calm voice. I can't go around you, so you'll have to open the door. Carson was very confused. The stranger's demeanor had changed completely. He took one step forward and ran out a pathway. There was nothing but piles of junk in every direction. See what I told you? I can't move any further. Look to your right. Carson slowly turned and saw a doorknob on one of the storage bins stacked from the floor to the ceiling. If he had not been looking closely, he would have missed it. He reached out for the handle and turned it to the left. To his surprise, the boxes swung forward, just like opening a door into a house. Inside, things were even more surreal. He was no longer standing in a dirty storage unit. The entryway had hardwood floors, walls with crown molding, and a table with a mirror hung above it. The man stepped past Carson and stretched out his arms. Welcome to my place. It's not much, but it's home. Come on in. Carson followed as the house opened up in front of him. It was just like he had stepped into a luxury apartment. Modern furniture, a minimalist aesthetic, huge windows which Carson realized were actually TV screens creating the illusion of being in a penthouse overlooking the park. Past the living room was one of the nicest kitchens he had ever seen in person. White tile backsplash and light gray cabinets contrasted nicely with the dark wood of the floors. They continued around the horseshoe to the left, and they were in an office space. Computers, servers, routers, hard drives, wires everywhere. This man was clearly a tech guy. Carson noticed a spiral staircase in the corner next to him. He couldn't see much, but it looked like a bedroom above the office. Have a seat, Carson, the man said as he sat down behind his desk. Carson sat down in an office chair across from him. He watched as the man took off his bandana and sunglasses. So, you may have figured this out, but just in case you haven't, I am Order Seeker. My assumption that you are Order Seeker is the only reason you're still conscious, Carson said while trying to hide his anger. Why didn't you say anything? 
he asked as he kicked his feet up on the desk. Because I was told not to tell anybody why I was here. If you weren't, Order Seeker, then I would have risked exposing you, and I would have lost my lead. The man quickly stood up from his chair and yelled, Then why did you tell somebody? And why the heck did you bring her here with you? Carson stood up slowly and leaned over the desk, never taking his eyes off Order Seekers. She is my partner. I wouldn't have even found the freaking journal page without her, and she was next to me when you sent the emails and the text, all of which you would have known if you had just asked instead of holding us at gunpoint and locking her up. He could feel himself getting angrier. He wanted nothing more than to jump across the table and beat the man senseless. Sure, he lied about how involved Jesse was, but it helped him have the moral high ground. I don't trust either of you, but I at least knew who you were, the man said, matching Carson's raised tone. Get her out of the unit right now, or so help me, I will end your day and burn this entire place to the ground. Fine, but if she turns on us or is the reason we get caught, I will single-handedly end your career in journalism for good. Okay, Carson said while trying not to sound annoyed. Just let her out of that unit. Code is 31193. You should get her and bring her in here. She'll handle seeing you first better. Carson stared him down as he left the room. He felt like he would enjoy the apartment a lot more if he was not as angry. Once he was outside, he turned around and looked at the building he was just inside. Order Seeker's apartment must have been four units with the walls cut out. It really was pretty ingenious. Jesse was still calling for help from inside Unit 48. Hang on, Jesse, he said as he fumbled for the lock. I'll get you out of there. When the door was starting to open, Jesse crawled out and flung her arms around Carson. He held her close as she cried into his shoulder. Carson, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I was so scared. Are you hurt? Where's the guy? Are you okay? Hey, it's okay. Breathe, breathe, good. I've got you. Once she caught her breath, the two pulled away from each other. So, uh, yeah, so what happened to the guy again? Right. So, he's Order Seeker. He's who I'm here to meet. He locked you up because he didn't know who you were and maybe implied that I should come alone, which pisses me off because I was going to explain our partnership to him and hopefully we could all work together, but he never gave us that chance. He and I talked in his secret apartment, which is why I was able to come and get you. Carson saw Jesse was processing all of this information. I don't think he will do anything stupid from now on, and if it were just me, I would go back inside and demand an apology, but if you want to leave, I totally understand. I see. So, did you find out what he knows? No, not yet, but I can come back some other time if you want. I want to meet him, Jesse said bluntly. Show me this secret hideout or whatever. Carson showed her the entrance to the secret apartment. She looked around, but did not seem impressed. They entered the office, and the man was sitting behind his desk, typing on a keyboard. Jesse, this is Order Seeker. Order Seeker, this is my partner, Jesse Ford. It's nice to meet you, Jesse said as she walked over to him with her hand reached out to shake his. Nice to meet- Jesse surprised the man with a slap from her left hand that was so hard he fell to the ground wincing in pain. That's for locking me up. Carson was frozen where he stood. He didn't know what to do. I probably deserve that, the man said as he got to his feet. He wiped some blood from his lip. But sometimes you need to get hit in the face to obtain the truth. Isn't that right, Carson? Carson wasn't sure if the man said that because his face was still recovering, or if he somehow knew about the altercation with Harold Garner. Either way, he knew he needed to take control of the situation. Let's stop wasting each other's time, Carson said as he set his messenger bag on the table. Show us what you have. We'll show you what we have, then we'll leave and never see each other again. Oh, Carson, you know it's not that simple, the man said as he opened some files on his computer. I am your best chance to prove this order exists. We need each other. He knew the man was right. As annoying as it was, they needed to pool resources. This order seeker clearly had the technology and the know-how to search for anything more efficiently than he and Jesse alone could ever do. Carson looked at Jesse for her opinion. She shrugged and then sat down at a desk. Carson pulled up another chair and sat next to her. You know who we are, so we get to know who you are or no dice. 
That's acceptable, he said, as he sat across from them. I have had many names in my life, but the one I was given at birth is Isaac. I lived my whole life in the city not far from here. My mother didn't want me, told my dad I was a mistake, so he got dumped with me. I was mostly raised by our neighbor who worked as a maid. I made some friends with her 16-year-old son who taught me everything I know about computers. He and I would hack grocery stores to give gift cards fake value, then sold them around the neighborhood. Eventually, Hector was arrested, but I hid my digital tracks. I became one of the best hackers in the country, maybe in the world. Or at least that's what I was told when I was brought in by the feds. They wanted me to do a job for them. Hacking a foreign military's weapons, a dictator's friend's phone, etc. I turned white hat, that's what I'm saying. Anyway, I did my job and then wanted to disappear because I knew they would be tracking me. So I wrote myself some fake death certificates, forged some coroner's reports about me, shopped some pictures, the works, bought this rundown storage facility, built my personal dream home, and now here we are. That's a great story and all. But I don't really care about your tragic childhood, Jesse said in a rather harsh tone. That's fair, he replied as he typed away at his computer. Tell me, Miss Ford, was it? Does your boyfriend know all of the juicy details of your backstory? I mean, he seems to be at your beck and call. Maybe I should tell him. The two glared at each other over the computer monitor. Look, I don't care what either of you have done in the past, especially you, Jesse. Now, you said your name was Isaac, right? How did you know about this order or whatever? I stumbled upon a few journal pages written by Stuart Kelly when I was super young. They referenced something called the Order and a possible nickname for the group, which I will share with you later. It was also proof that the organization was real and that they were pulling the strings of society without us even knowing they were there. It's some Illuminati stuff, man. Carson looked over at Jesse, who was looking at him. She, too, must have heard the similarities in Isaac's story and his own. Then I started digging all over the web for references to those black wreaths in the letters, and they're everywhere. So imagine my surprise when I see somebody chatting it up about the wreaths on one of my fake websites, and it turns out to be a guy who not only has a father who died and had a wreath on his grave, but also had a mother who was the only woman I have ever been able to find who had a wreath on hers. If you were asking questions, then clearly this is a deep cut, because if your parents were involved, you would think that you would have known from a young age and basically joined by now, right? He's got a point, Jesse said, while continuing to look at Carson. So what do you say, Carson? Isaac asked while holding out his hand. Work with me? With your resources and my tech? We may finally be able to expose this organization once and for all. Carson looked at Jesse one last time, who gave a small nod in approval. I say, let's read a journal. Wednesday, January 25th, 1984. The Gardner family was finally on their way to Europe for their annual inspection of assets that was really just a company-funded vacation. Everybody knew it, but nobody would ever call them out on it. What Francis Gardner wanted to do with Gardner Industries was his business. For me, this meant a short reprieve from my boss and also lessened security at their mansion. After lunch, I drove up to the estate and pretended to have a package to drop off. They told me to leave it at the gate and go. I did not think that they would simply let me onto the property. Besides, they would have known if I didn't leave at all. No, the package was merely a distraction. I hid in the trees across the road from the main gate and waited. The sound of men screaming and running away from the guard outpost meant that the kitchen timer I placed inside had gone off. Now was my chance. I darted across the street, hoisted myself over the fence, and laid flat. There was a beautiful garden in the front lawn. If I could get to it, I could hide behind the hedges as I made my way closer to the house. It took a while, but eventually I made it to the last hedge. I needed a way into the house. I knew the main doors would be locked, so it would have to be a service entrance. When the coast was clear, I dashed to the side of the house and hid behind a tree. Nobody had seen me yet. I hugged the walls as I circled around the side of the massive stone building. I darted quickly past windows until I found the side entrance I was looking for. I started sneaking around the inside of the house. I was super nervous. Hadn't ever done something this risky before. My gut told me to find Mr. Gardner's study. 
If he was going to keep secrets anywhere, they would probably be locked up in there. After searching for a while, I came across two French doors with curtains blocking the view inside. When I tried the handle, it was locked. Luckily, I was prepared and brought my lock picking kit for this very purpose. It took some time, but eventually the door popped open. I quickly slid inside and shut the door behind me. Inside was a large wooden desk, lots of books, and some chairs. I opened all of the desk drawers, having to pick two of them. Unfortunately, I could not find anything particularly interesting. I flipped through the Rolodex on top of the desk, looking for names I recognized. I saw some famous politicians and business owners as expected. I also kept my eyes open for Harold's clue. Unfortunately, that resulted in five names I believed to be alive or did not know. I continued to search through the office. One of the wall panels, when pushed, opened like a door and revealed a small closet. Inside, a plain black hooded robe was hanging next to a shiny silver-handled sword. On the shelf in front of them was a small wooden box that had been painted black. I opened the lid and found a tall candle, a skull, a dagger, a compass, two white gloves, and a leather-bound Bible. These were certainly ritualistic materials. At the bottom of the trunk was an official-looking leather-bound book embossed with a compass face. Inside were what appeared to be meeting minutes, all handwritten in black ink. I skimmed the most recent meeting and saw a list of all who were present. I quickly snapped a picture of it. The reminders at the end of the meeting included the usual monthly meeting on February 6th and also mentioned plans for initiation of new members on Leap Year Day 229, as is tradition. We look forward to welcoming the new Leapers. It also mentioned thanking Gwendolyn for hosting the wives at the last gathering. She certainly knows how to keep order around the house. It was as good a lead as any. I ran back to the Rolodex and searched for Gwendolyn listed in the names. Looks like I have a date at another manor. So Isaac, tell us about this Gwendolyn person. Have you been able to find anything on her? Carson, Jesse, and Isaac had just finished reading each other's journal pages and put them together in chronological order. Believe it or not, I tried to narrow it down using her name, but was not nearly as successful as I would have liked to be. He gestured for them to circle around the desk and look at his computer screen. We know roughly how old Gwendolyn would have been at the time of this journal, because she had been alive already, and if she was a person of interest for this Stuart guy, then she must have been an adult as well. With a name like Gwendolyn, even in the 80s, it shouldn't be too popular of a name, but I still found around 50. I tried to narrow it down by cross-referencing records with the name Kelly and Gardner, other known members of the order, but still the search parameters were too wide. I assumed it was a dead end until I found either Stuart or more of his journals. Wait, I know that name, Jesse said while inspecting the pages. Carson, wasn't Gardner the name of the man who punched you at the courthouse? Uh, one the same. Francis was his dad, and reading Stuart's journals honestly explains a lot about Harold. Poor guy has been a follower and an idiot his whole life. We need to go interrogate him, Jesse said excitedly. We know he's in the order thing, so why not just go confront him? You and I could try that, Isaac said as he continued to look over the new journal pages. Carson here would never make it to the gates of Gardner Manor. He's right. As soon as I saw that name, I was excited, but then I knew any chance I had with him was gone. I'm positive he has a restraining order out against me by now. The three sat in silence for a minute while they read. Isaac, is Leapers the other name you mentioned? Carson asked. Yeah, I think it has to be. Maybe it's a nickname or slang or some sort of code, but based on the journal, I definitely believe they refer to themselves as Leapers. Were you able to find anything online about that name? Nothing, which makes me believe it even more. They must not use it online at all. What about Joseph's lovely wife from our journal page, Carson? Jesse asked while holding up the page. Do you think that may be Gwendolyn? Could be, he said as he looked at both names. It's worth a shot. He pulled up the headstones folder on his laptop. Isaac, 
These are all of the headstones my father was able to document that had wreaths on them. Well, some of the ones I have found are in there too, but they all have had the wreath. Oh, wow, Isaac said as he scrolled through the pictures. There are so many. There are, Carson agreed. So there are at least nine possible Josephs that my father and I documented. If we assume Gwendolyn was his wife, I can eliminate five of them because they were buried with their spouses. That leaves Joseph Craig, Joseph Maisel, Joseph Beckham, and Joseph Montgomery. We will have to research each man to see who their spouses are and see if I can find one that married a Gwendolyn. We could split up the list, Jesse suggested. Divide and conquer, you know? Alphabetically, Beckham's first. I'll take him. Uh, yeah, that works, Carson said as he looked at the list Jesse made. I guess I can take Craig, uh, Isaac, you can take Maisel, and whoever finishes first can do Montgomery. I'll just do Maisel and Montgomery at the same time, Isaac said as he typed away at his computer. I'm faster than both of you. Carson couldn't believe they may have another lead. He thought the journal page was big, but this was huge. His father must have found the journal page and, like Isaac, viewed it as a dead end. There must be countless Josephs in the city alone, and without knowing his wife's name, it was a useless clue. It's not Maisel, Isaac said, breaking the silence. Guy was married to a Rachel for almost 50 years, no mistresses I can find. Damn, not Craig either, Carson said a few minutes later. He was married twice, once to a Carol and once to a Diane. Isaac and Jesse were both still researching on their computers. Would either of you like me to help research Beckham or Montgomery? No, I think I'm okay. I'm almost done, Jesse said. Sure, Isaac said as he stood up. I'm going to go make a sandwich. You guys hungry? I'm good, actually, thanks, Carson said as he left the room. He rolled his chair over to Jesse, who put her screen down. He's, like, super weird, right? Jesse giggled quietly. If you had just described him and this place to me, I would have called you crazy. Carson tried to hold in his laughter. Once he had regained his composure, he looked at her with a serious look on his face. Are, are you okay? I know you've been through a lot. Yeah, I'm okay. I was, it was terrifying for sure, but I'll be okay. She opened her laptop and kicked his chair away with her foot. Now leave me alone so I can research my guy. She smiled as he rolled away. Race you to see who can find something first. Several minutes later, and Carson had not found anything on Montgomery. He found a few documents that seemed to indicate he had been married, but he had not found anything to confirm that. Yes! Carson was startled by Jessie's excited outburst. What'd you find? He asked as he quickly walked to her side. She turned her screen towards him and showed him an obituary. Joseph William Beckham was born on January 7, 1918, at his family ranch upstate. He comes from a long, proud line of Beckhams that helped build the very paper you work for from the ground up. He was a well-known businessman until his death in 2015. Wow, I had no idea, said Carson. He was in awe at how much this one man had accomplished in his life. Impressive, right? Jesse said as she clicked to the next page. So, if you look here, you'll see that Mr. Beckham was married to one Gwendolyn Eve Scott. Gwendolyn! Holy crap! Holy crap is right, Carson. But wait, there's more. More? More, as in she's still alive. Jesse pulled up an article from the previous August. Mrs. Gwendolyn Beckham celebrated 97 years of life at the historic Beckham estate. No obit for her? Carson asked, trying not to get too excited just yet. Nope, Jesse said excitedly. We should pay her a visit. Carson's head was spinning. If Beckham didn't die until 2015, it would explain why his father never made the connection. He himself died a mere months later. If Gwendolyn was still alive, this could be his chance to get some proof that the organization was real. You said it yourself. We can't go to Gardner right now, Jesse said as she studied his face. I think you know this is our next move. Carson knew she was right. I'll make some calls and try and set up an interview with Gwendolyn or someone at the Beckham estate, probably in the morning. Even if we left right now, it would be well after dinner by the time we could get up there. Jesse, can you pull up directions and see how long it will take to get there? We will likely need to rent a car. Car? 
Isaac asked as he re-entered the room. What'd you find? Is it Montgomery or Beckham? Beckham, Carson answered. I need to make some calls. You want to come along when we go meet Gwendolyn? Tomorrow? Can't. Family thing. But if you do go, you have to tell me everything you find. The next morning, Carson picked up Jesse in front of the coffee shop in his rental car. Ready for an adventure partner? Carson asked as she sat in the passenger seat. He was genuinely excited. He couldn't remember the last time he was this hyped up for a story. Ready, she answered with a big smile on her face. Did you tell your boss where we were going? I told him I was going to sit down with the future mayor's mother and sister. What he doesn't know is I already interviewed them last week on a phone call and scheduled a follow-up for next week. Ooh, that's good, Jesse said. She seemed genuinely impressed. I just told my boss that I trust the newbies were ready and a random weekday morning shift would be a good test of their abilities. That's good too, Carson said as they high-fived. So, Mr. Reporter, you have the hookup on rental cars? My source gives me a good rate, and maybe I scrapped a story once about some of his employees stealing from scrapyards to fix the cars he rents. Carson James, a corrupt reporter? Jesse said with a playful laugh. Can I trust anybody anymore? Ha ha, Carson mocked. He knows I have the story in my back pocket. I told him I wouldn't run it if he promised to only obtain parts legally from then on. He thinks I've got constant eyes on him now. So, our meeting with Gwendolyn is in four hours, and currently our drive time is three and a half, Jesse said as she was pulling up the directions. We better get moving then, Carson said as he put on his sunglasses. Where to, partner? Carson enjoyed driving. He did not have much of a reason to, since his home and work were downtown right off of subway stops, but there was just something freeing about steering a car at high speeds down a winding highway road. Having Jesse with him for the road trip further pushed him out of his comfort zone. What was crazy to him was that he didn't mind. He was enjoying the journey of self-discovery befriending Jesse was turning out to be. The initial road trip excitement wore off after the first hour, and Carson could tell that Jesse was running on fumes. You can take a nap, you know. I really don't mind. I probably should close my eyes for a few... Carson looked over at her and saw that she was already fast asleep. He chuckled to himself at how quickly she had passed out. The further he drove, the more Carson's mind raced. He imagined what life would be like if he moved away from the city. His whole life he had been in townhomes and apartments, in the heart of the action, but sometimes he craved an escape from all the chaos. He wondered what his mom would have wanted if she was still alive. He imagined all of the things he would say to his father if he hadn't died too. Growing up, he did not have many friends. As he grew older, he never had a serious relationship. He always told himself that he pushed people away because they were distractions from his career goals. But now, as he sat in a car driving away from his job with another person, he felt more like himself than he had in years. Hey, Jesse. Hey. We're getting close, he said as he gently nudged her arm. You should see these houses. Mm. Good morning, she replied sleepily. How'd you sleep? Pretty well. I don't remember falling asleep. Sorry I couldn't stay awake with you. Without your hard work, we wouldn't be here right now, said Carson. You earned that nap. Jessie smiled at him. She looked out the window and saw the next mansion through the gates. That's not a house. That's a freaking castle. Carson pulled the car up to the front gates of Beckham Estates and pressed the intercom buzzer. An older man in a security guard uniform stepped out of a small booth. Name and identification, please, he said in a quiet yet firm voice. Both of you. My name is Carson James, reporter for the Times. This is my photographer, Jesse. We have an appointment with Mrs. Gwendolyn Beckham in 20 minutes. He checked their IDs and nodded approvingly. You will get these back upon your departure. Enjoy your time at Beckham Estates. He slowly walked back to the guard booth and opened the gates. Carson slowly drove the car up the long tree-lined driveway. He could tell that the gardens around them would be gorgeous in the spring. Jesse was taking pictures and smiling from ear to ear. This place is beautiful, isn't it? 
Carson had been to houses like this as a reporter, and every time he stepped foot on the property, he felt out of place. His grandparents were not poor, but they did have to work a little bit harder to make ends meet when they took him in. Ever since then, Carson had tried to live off of only what was essential, rarely splurging on himself. It's something for sure. He pulled the car up, and they were greeted by a man in a tuxedo complete with white gloves. Welcome to Beckham Manor. May I valet your car, sir? Yes, please. Thank you, sir, Carson said, as he placed the keys in his outstretched hand. The old man blew a high-pitched pipe whistle, and a younger man, also dressed in a tux, ran out from a small hut practically invisible behind tall trees. He took the keys, quickly bowed to Carson and Jesse, before hopping in the car and driving away. That's never not weird to me, Carson said as they were ushered up the stairs. I bet you get used to it, Jesse said. Inside of Beckham Manor was exquisite. It was a modern-day palace. For the next 15 minutes, the old man led them around, showing them room after room, telling them about the furniture, the art, and the famous people who owned things before the Beckhams obtained them. And finally, we have the yellow room. This is where you will be meeting Miss Beckham. Tea will be served. Please do not begin eating the biscuits until Mrs. Beckham determines it is time. Sir? Madam? Of course. Thank you, Nigel, Jesse said as the old man bowed and exited the room. Nigel? How did you know his name? Carson asked, completely bewildered. Oh, uh, the valet boy said it when he took the keys. Didn't you catch it? I guess I must have missed it, Carson said. He still felt a little skeptical. Five minutes later, two men in tuxedos opened the French doors. Behind them, who could only be Gwendolyn Beckham, slowly walked into the room. Carson and Jesse stood up to greet their host. It's not every day I get asked to interview for the papers, she said in a shaky voice. Mr. James, correct? Yes, ma'am, Carson said as he held out a hand for her to shake. Thank you so much for agreeing to meet with me. Of course, my dear boy, she said as she sat down across from them. The ornate chair back framed her perfectly. She looked over to Jesse. And you are a photographer now? Jesse Ford, yes, ma'am, Jesse said quickly as she reached out and shook Gwendolyn's hand. You have a lovely home. Very lovely, Carson agreed. He could not believe how awkward Jesse was being. Maybe she was not used to the super wealthy and how they want to be treated like royalty. Gwendolyn gestured for them to sit down. So what can I do for the times today? She asked. Well, ma'am, I'm doing a piece on the beautiful estates up here, and everybody I've met with so far says you have to see Beckham Manor, so here we are. That sounds wonderful, said Gwendolyn. Shall we have tea and then begin? She reached out and grabbed a small bell from the table next to her. She rang it twice, and promptly a man and woman dressed in service attire entered the room. One carried cups, saucers, and teaspoons. The other carried the tray with the kettle and sugar cubes. Thank you. That will be all, she said as she dismissed her servers. So, Mr. James, where would you like to begin? Carson started out asking basic questions about the manor and the property before moving to her marriage to Joseph Beckham. He did not want to pat himself on the back too much, but Carson felt confident that he was in complete control of the interview. Mrs. Beckham, I was wondering if I could go off topic for a few minutes. Off the record, of course. Certainly, my dear. Excellent, Carson said, as he dug a folder out of his messenger bag. I was doing some research on this manor, and I stumbled upon some peculiar writings. He opened the folder and revealed the journal pages. These appear to be notes, or perhaps entries from a journal that were written by somebody named Stuart Kelly. He handed the pages to her one by one. This page mentions Joseph's wife, and this page mentions Gwendolyn. Would that happen to be you? Carson watched as she inspected the pages. Are these real? she asked. Carson nodded. These appear to be originals, too, she said as she held them up to the light. Remarkable. So you are familiar with these, Carson pressed. 
You know who Stuart Kelly was. Did he come here to meet with you? It is important that we know if you ever met this man, Jessie stepped in. I see, Gwendolyn said as she reached out and rang the bell. I do know who Stuart Kelly is. Practically became another grandchild after a while. I believe I had the complete journal, but now seeing these pages makes me suspicious that I am missing more than I thought. One of the men in tuxedos emerged through a side door. You rang, Mrs. Beckham. Yes, please kindly escort this young man to Joseph's study and help him find Kelly's old notebook. You know the one. It's leather-bound. Right away, ma'am, the man said as he stood next to Carson. Sir, if you could follow me this way, please. Can my photographer come too? Carson asked. I would actually quite enjoy a chance to speak with the girl, Gwendolyn said. After all, you and I have been talking all this time, Mr. James. I am longing for a little chat with a fellow lady. I'll be fine up here, Jessie said as she handed him the camera. I can't wait to see what you find. Mrs. Beckham, may I ask you one last question before I go? Certainly. The journal pages seem to indicate that your husband and the gardeners were involved in a group or organization. I've heard it called The Order, and now this page refers to leapers. What can you tell me about that? Joseph and his friends would sometimes call each other leapers, she said as she fumbled for her tea. I never understood why, but they were all part of the same fraternity or order or something like that. Can you tell me anything about the fraternity? Carson pressed. I'm sorry, my boy. I was never in the study with Joseph and his friends. I was entertaining the ladies downstairs, or I kept out of sight and out of mind. Carson thought she was starting to look uneasy and uncomfortable. Can you tell us anything about when they would meet? Jesse asked. Oh, well, I knew that. They would meet the first Monday of every month, always had that evening to myself to do the things that Joseph did not wish to see me doing. Thank you, Mrs. Beckham, Carson said as he stood up to leave. She had just confirmed that her husband was part of the organization and confirmed the monthly meetings that Stuart wrote about. Now Carson had the opportunity to look through Joseph Beckham's study and possibly find more Stuart Kelly journals. He couldn't help but smile as he followed the man down the ornate hallways. The study may just hold the key to the whole operation. Carson followed the man for a couple minutes down various hallways and flights of stairs. Eventually, they entered the study. The room was large, with bookshelves lining every wall, each one perfectly organized, not a book out of place. There was a large oak desk in the center of the room, with a leather chair behind it. A reading nook off to the side had matching chairs and a round table. On the opposite side of the room was an old grand piano. Sir, may I ask you to have a seat while I obtain the notebook? The man said as he gestured to the small reading area. Yeah, sure, Carson said as he sat down at the table. The server began opening drawers of the desk and opening random cabinets around the room. Several minutes later, Carson began to suspect that this man had no idea where the notebook was. Do you need some help? Carson offered as he watched on. No, sir. If you will excuse me, I will go ask for some assistance. Carson watched as he left the study and disappeared quickly to the right. Not one to sit tight, Carson began searching on his own. He checked the desk for false drawers or false bottoms. He checked for any hidden switches or latches, but came up empty. Carson exited the study and walked down the hallway. The next room was a staff-only laundry room, but there was definitely enough space for another room in between where there was just a wall. He went back into the study and began expecting bookshelves along the wall. He had seen hidden doors in movies and TV shows, but never in person. On the third shelf in, he finally saw it. A book, leather-bound, titled, I, the Leaper. Bingo, Carson said as he pulled the top of the book towards him. The sound of a latch releasing followed before the whole shelf swung outwards towards him. With a huge smile on his face, Carson walked into the dark, hidden room. 
He pulled out his phone and turned on the flashlight. The room looked like a large conference room, with a 20-foot white marble table in the middle flanked by black leather chairs. There were two ornate chandeliers hanging from the ceiling and smaller candelabras hanging on the wall. At first, Carson was surprised to see the room was not covered in dust, but he figured that Joseph Jr. must also be in the organization and occasionally held meetings in this room. The far wall had a long black wooden cabinet. On the wall above it was a plain black tapestry. Carson opened the drawers and began flipping through files and rummaging through boxes. Inside one of the boxes was a file named Stuart. He pulled it out, and inside was a brown leather notebook. This is it. Sure enough, there were some pages missing from the beginning of the book. Based on dates, he felt confident that he had seen the missing pages. Let's see what else you had to say, Stuart. Friday, January 27, 1984. Yesterday, I took a trip upstate to meet with Miss Gwendolyn Beckham at the family manor. I called the day before and requested an interview with her. I continued to pretend I was a reporter writing a piece on old buildings in the upstate area. Gossip travels. Surely she would have heard if one of her other rich friends was interviewed and she wasn't. The Beckham Manor is huge, truly deserving of its recognition. It could easily be a museum if nobody lived there. I was welcomed inside and was ushered into a room where tea was served. Mrs. Beckham eventually joined me and we started the fake interview. After some talk about the history of the house and the grounds, I turned the conversation to her and her husband's lives. I tried to get her to give up any information she could about the order or the leapers that were involved. When it became clear that she was not going to give me anything, I turned the questions back to the history of the house and asked for a tour. She agreed to send me with one of her butlers when we had completed our meeting. When we wrapped up, I thanked her for her time, took a couple pictures of her sitting like royalty in her chair, and was taken on a tour by the butler. We passed by what looked like a study. I knew I needed to see what was in there. If Joseph Beckham was hiding anything related to the organization, it would be in that room. The tour wrapped up, and I requested to use the restroom before my long drive. I requested to use a staff restroom by implying that it may take a bit of time. Once I was alone, I snuck out, being careful to shut the door quietly behind me. I tiptoed down the hallways until I reached the study. As expected, I had to use my lock-picking set. I was getting really good at it lately. I snuck inside before anyone could see me and hid behind the large desk. I checked through the drawers for anything related to the organization, but could not find anything. There were bookshelves on every wall. I thought one of them may hold the answers I was looking for. I looked over every book until I saw one that stood out to me. It was a black leather-bound book called I the Leaper. I reached for the book, and to my surprise, it opened a hidden door. I cautiously peeked my head inside. It was a long room with a beautiful marble table at the center that contrasted with the black leather chairs surrounding it. In front of the head chair was a black leather document folder similar to the one I saw in Gardner's study. I opened it and saw what looked like somebody else's handwritten notes. Each page had a person's name on top and either a yay or nay next to it. Underneath were what must be notes from when the person was presented as a candidate. I took pictures of all of the pages. Some were more personal and talked about the specific man. Others were more basic and focused on the required materials and the application process. Next, I noticed a black cabinet behind me. I opened it up, and there were file folders. The one at the very front was named Gwendolyn Letters. Out of curiosity, I opened the folder and glanced at the letters. Joseph Beckham Sr. had written the letters to his wife when he was traveling as a much younger man. He was looking for something. I knew my time was running out, so I took pictures of all of the letters. To my surprise, one of the pages had instructions on how to join the order. I quickly stashed the page in my sock and started putting the letters away. I heard a voice suddenly say, Hey! I looked up to see who caught me, but something hard hit me squarely on the head. I hit the floor, and everything went dark. 
Carson could not believe what he had just read. He and Stuart had followed almost the exact same path to find the exact same room. The journal mentioned instructions on how to join the order. Maybe Stuart wrote those in his journal too. Carson kept reading. I woke up with a terrible headache. As I came to, I realized I was tied to one of the leather chairs in the secret room. Sitting across from me was the man I knew to be Joseph Beckham. His son, Joseph II, was also in the room. I told them I thought we just had a big misunderstanding. I was admiring their private library and thought it was very exciting. Joseph did not appear to be amused. He demanded to know who I was and why I was there. I told him my cover story, but before I could finish, he slapped me across the face. I spat out blood from my cut lip. He demanded I tell the truth. I tried my cover story again, which resulted in two quick punches to the gut. Eventually, I caved. I was not about to give up my true motives for being there, but I was going to lie my way out of a bad situation if I could. I told them I worked for Francis Gardner, that he had sent me to look for compromising materials he could use later for business purposes. Joseph II did not seem convinced. His father, on the other hand, pressed on with the questions. He asked why I was looking through the letters. He asked if they meant anything to me. I told him that I saw a folder with personal letters he wrote to his wife and thought I may find some compromising details in the pages or maybe a photo of him or his wife. This resulted in another cross-faced slap. I decided to make a deal. I offered up all of the incriminating information I had collected on Francis's son, Harold Gardner, in exchange for my freedom and silence. With my file in hand, they finally let me go. He told me I was forever banished from Beckham Manor. When I got home, I read the instructions on how to apply. Conveniently enough, we were close to the first of the month, so I would not have to wait long before applying. Monday, January 30th, 1984. I spent the weekend collecting the materials and writing my letter. When I was content with my application, I locked it in my safe where it would wait until the first. I got to work and the office was in a frenzy. I asked what was going on. A huge lawsuit was being filed against Francis's son, Harold. I knew that the information had come from me. How did they move so fast? What was crazier was our boss, Francis, had died in a car accident in the early hours of Sunday morning upstate. I was panicking. I had caused all of this. This organization was powerful. They could come for me next. No, I thought. They don't know who I really am. Maybe I can infiltrate them secretly and expose the organization. If I prove the conspiracy, perhaps I can right my wrongs. Carson felt his heart racing. For the first time, he was beginning to feel the weight and power that the men in this organization held. It's possible that Stuart's boss's death was an unfortunate coincidence, but it was also highly likely that the Beckhams had had him killed because of Stuart's lies. A page fell out of the notebook onto the floor. It was a short list of instructions. No way, Carson thought as he quickly took a picture of the page. The sound of footsteps through the wall behind him snapped him back to reality. He did not want to be caught in the room like Stuart was. He carefully inserted the instructions page into a secret pocket in his bag. With the notebook in hand, he left the room, carefully pulling the shelf closed behind him. Mr. James, I must apologize for the delay. I have a new idea where the notebook may have been moved to. Carson hid the notebook behind his back. Where might that be? he asked. I'm afraid you would have to come back another time, as it would have to be retrieved from a secure storage location, sir. Carson knew that he had just found out that the notebook was in the secret meeting room. Unfortunately for Carson, he had just stolen that notebook from the Stuart file in that room. He did not want them to know he had found the secret room, so he had to get creative. Actually, I may have found the notebook, he said while producing it from behind his back. The server seemed shocked. In this room, sir? Yeah, I may have overstepped, but I found it tucked in the back of this big desk drawer. The man seemed confused, but accepted that what he was holding must be the notebook in question. Very good, sir. My apologies for missing it. No worries, Carson said as he took the notebook back. It happens. 
The man ushered Carson out of the study, and the two walked back to the yellow room where Jesse and Gwendolyn were still talking. We found the notebook, Carson announced as he entered the room. That's wonderful, my boy, Gwendolyn said with a smile. Have you read it? Not yet, Carson lied. I wanted to read it for the first time with you if you wanted to reread it, ma'am. Oh, that's quite all right, she said. You can borrow it. Just promise you will bring it back here soon. Carson's phone began to ring. He looked and saw it was his editor, Henry Wensler. Why is he calling me, Carson pondered. Excuse me, Mrs. Beckham, this is my boss. I have to take this, Carson said as he stepped out of the room. This is James, he said as he answered the call. Carson, where the hell are you? I'm on the east side, sir. Is everything okay? No, I need you to get north, fast. North? Carson asked. North where? Haven't you heard by now? Harold Gardner is dead. To be continued. <laughs>